begins with those kind of the, the prayers and praise at the beginning of Luke's gospel that, that frames King Jesus as the new um, new king in the line of David. So that's, um, that's what we're looking at. But what I wanted to do, kind of picking up again on how the New Testament interacts um, with, uh, with 1 Samuel and 1 Kings and so on, is um, take you to Acts, the, which is Luke volume 2, really, um, you know, that Luke's gospel sets us up as a first book and a second book. Did you realise that? So Luke begins saying how Theophilus many have undertaken to describe the things fulfilled uh, in Jesus. And so here I am writing this account, having spoken with those who are eyewitnesses. And then Acts says in my first book, I told you about what Jesus did and began before he was taken up into heaven. And the implication is he's now continuing to teach the acts of Jesus now, ruling and reigning by his spirit through his people. And Acts, uh, we get these little histories that go back over the Old Testament history and then point to um, uh, to how Jesus is the fulfilment of them. I just want to point out a couple of them and make an observation about them. The first is in um, in Acts chapter 3, one of the early um, sermons by Peter. In Acts chapter 3, Peter uh, heals uh, a beggar. Um, and then as he sort of describes the significance of um, this power that came by the Spirit because Jesus has risen, he tells the history um, to the onlookers in the, the courtyard of the, the synagogue, so this, oh, sorry, the temple. Acts chapter 3 and verse 12. When Peter saw this, he said to the men of Israel, Why does this surprise you? Why do you stare at us as if by our own power or godliness we've made this man walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus. You handed him over to be killed and you disowned him before Pilate, though he had decided to let him go. You disowned the holy and righteous one asked that a murderer be released to you. You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. We are witnesses of this. By faith in the name of Jesus, this man whom you see is now made strong. It is Jesus' name and the faith that comes through him that this man is completely healed as you now see. Now, brothers, verse 17. I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your leaders, but this is how God fulfilled what he had foretold through all the prophets, saying that the Christ would suffer. Repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be um, wiped out and times of refreshing may come from the Lord, that he may send the Christ who has been appointed for you, even Jesus. He must remain in heaven until the time comes to restore everything, as he promised long ago through his holy prophets. For Moses said, the Lord uh, God will raise up for you a prophet like you, um, from among uh, uh, all the people, you must listen to everything he tells you. Anyone who doesn't listen uh, will be completely cut off from his people. Indeed, all the prophets from Samuel on, as many have spoken, have foretold these days. And you are heirs of the prophets of the covenant of God made through your fathers. He said to Abraham, through your offspring, all peoples of the earth will be blessed. When God raised up his servant, he sent him first to bless you, to turn each of you from your wicked ways. So that's the first way in which the sermons uh, in, in the act uh, talked about in terms of promise and prophecy. We talked about that a little last night, that uh, Jesus comes to fulfil the promises and prophecy. First, the promises given to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. Those promises are somewhat fulfilled in the experience of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and Moses and Joshua and Samuel and David and Solomon, somewhat fulfilled. But these preachers say, if you want to see the full fulfilment, of everything promised to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. You look to Jesus. He's the one who gives the forgiveness, gives the refreshing, gives the healing, gives all the covenant blessings. And, and 
by, uh, in the same way, he points then to the later prophets, beginning with Samuel. Isn't that an interesting thing to note? That Samuel, who we're looking at in 1 Samuel, is the first of the line of prophets who continue to prophesy, again, of a future. So even though Samuel spends a lot of time in the monarchy and the business of, um, of his day, the Apostle Peter is saying ultimately he's also the beginning of a lineage that profits ahead to a future of the fulfilment of the promise to Abraham in the time of Jesus. So that's, that's one way they, they tell the history is they say in the end, the Old Testament is a history of promises and prophecies that come fulfilled in Jesus. But alongside that, there's another way in which their sermons go. Um, and I'll, I'll take you along to have a look at the way that, um, uh, that the Apostle Paul tells the history in, um, in Acts chapter 13. Come and look with me at Acts 13 and see the way the Apostle Paul tells the history. And this is more in line with actually what kind of one Samuel and the actual history books. He, he recounts the, uh, the events much more in this sermon. This is Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 13 and verse 16. Standing up, Paul motioned with his hand and said, Men of Israel and you Gentiles who worship God, listen to me. The God of the people Israel chose our fathers. He made the people prosper during their stay in Egypt with mighty power. He led them out of that country. He endured their conduct for about 40 years in the desert. He overthrew seven nations in Canaan and gave their land to his people as their inheritance. All this took about 450 years. After this, God gave them judges until the time of Samuel. There he is again, our prophet. Uh, the people asked for a king and he gave them Saul. This is what we looked at yesterday. Um, Saul, son of Kish, of the tribe of Benjamin, who ruled 40 years. After removing Saul, he made David their king. He testified concerning him. I found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. So that brings us up to around 1000 BC. Uh, we get this story beginning with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob going through Moses, then Saul, and then David, step by step through the history. And then we, after that, we get Solomon, don't we? And after that, we get Rehoboam, don't we? And after that, we then get a, reach then into Zerubbabel as they return from exile. None of that is mentioned. Did you notice what happens next? We get this sudden uh, fast forward in verse 23. From this man's descendants, God brought to Israel the saviour, Jesus, as he promised. We jump straight ahead to Jesus before the coming Jesus. John preached repentance, the baptism to the people of Israel. And John completing his work, he said, who do you think I am? I'm not the one. one coming after me whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. Brothers, children of Abraham, God-fearing Gentiles, it is to us that the message of salvation has been sent. The people of Jerusalem and their rulers didn't recognise Jesus, yet in condemning him, they fulfilled the words of the prophets that are preached every Sabbath. And they found no proper ground for death sentence. They asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written about him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in the tomb. But God raised him from the dead and for many days was seen by those who travelled from Galilee to Jerusalem. They are now witnesses to our people. We tell you the good news. What God has promised to our fathers, he's fulfilled for us, their children, by raising up Jesus. And then we just get his little um, gospel preach at the end there um, in verse um, uh, 39, through him everyone who believes is justified from everything you could not be justified by from the law of Moses. So this is great news. But notice that little gap that he, after telling the story bit by bit, the, the promises to the forefathers, the rescue out of Egypt, Saul, and then after Saul comes David, this fast forward. Why the fast forward? Well, an Australian theologian who's been um, very influential over the last um, few decades, Graham Goldsworthy, I'm not sure if you've heard of him. He wrote a book called Gospel and Kingdom, According to Plan, Reading the Bible as Christian Scripture, a string of books that have been very, very helpful for a lot of people reading the Bible, a lot of theologians and preachers. Um, he observes the fact that um, 
his observation is this often happens, that you get this story told up to David and then like this fast forward to Jesus. And his argument, which I think it makes a strong point, is that in telling the story up to that point, you've kind of got um, the Old Testament pattern of the kingdom reaches its high point in David and perhaps Solomon and his temple. You could add Solomon there as captured in David. You have all the, the promise to the promised land, to the exodus, to the people, to the temple, to the law, to the kingship, to the kingdom, to the temple, to Jerusalem. Um, and that's, that's, in a sense, establishing a pattern of the kingdom of God. And everything from that point on in the Old Testament history is really just collapse. It's sin, it's failure, it's judgment, it's exile. And, and although they come back from exile from Babylon, it's, it's like a, a poor man's version of what you had under David and Solomon. So Graham Goldsworthy argues, and I think it's a good point, that really what Paul is doing here and what Peter does in some of his other sermons is not so much the promise prophecy sermon as the pattern of the kingdom fulfilled in the ultimate king. So he like tells the story of setting up the pattern. Here's how God did a, a, a sort of redemption in Moses and built a sort of kingdom with David and established a presence in a sort of promised land in Jerusalem. Fast forward, now Jesus is the great king, bringing the great redemption, bringing the great rescue, one that, it, that saves you from everything the law of Moses couldn't save you from, who, who, brings, who rules from a heavenly temple, who establishes an eternal kingdom, who renews the whole world. And so rather than it being um, a promise fulfilment, prophecy fulfilment sermon, it's a pattern, which then fails because it's an incomplete one. Again, the, the failed Zoolander reference last night, it's the centre for ants, that then is fulfilled by a grander, fuller, truer picture of the great exodus, Jesus' rescue from sin, death and judgment, a greater kingdom, King Jesus, who is God the Son himself, ruling from a greater throne over all the earth. When we, and he's building his temple, which is uh, by his spirit in all of us and ultimately will be in all things as times of refreshing come. So that's where we are at in 1 Samuel, in other words, is the building of the final point of the pattern of the kingdom. As we see the failure of Saul and his replacement by David, the one chosen after God's own heart, with whom God makes a covenant in 2 Samuel 7, and whose son then builds the temple in Solomon, we get the high point of the Old Testament history. You know, if you're kind of going, which way around do we look at the timeline? We're kind of going the high point here, where we finally get all the promises seem to be fulfilled, and it's still far below the greater mountaintop which is Jesus to come, yeah? And so that's where we're at. We're looking at this final setting up of the pattern of the kingdom. And so the first part of our time today in 1 Samuel, we're going to briefly look at what we didn't touch on last night, the failure of Saul. And then secondly, we're going to look at, um, at his replacement of David, the, man, the king after God's own heart. So let's come back to 1 Samuel. And we're looking, just going to touch on three events of failure in 13, 14, and 15. Three failures of Saul's kingship. I'd already noted that Saul, while being impressive, like you're the king like the nation, head taller, handsome, remarkable, um, had shown himself to be passive, taking the lead from the servant as they were looking for the donkeys, getting this um, remarkable string of signs from Samuel, and then proceeding to just kind of go home and do nothing. Um, <clears throat> even when finally he's summoned into action. Uh, 
it, it takes a while for the news to get to him before the spirit comes upon him, and he does. He hasn't commended himself as um, as a remarkable leader, um, uh, seizing hold of God's promises to him and responding with proactivity. And those little clues that we'd noticed in um, nine, ten, eleven, and twelve. Um, those little hints, those little red flags, as we say, uh, maybe yellow flags, um, they now are really glaring, sort of flashing red sirens. <laughs> it's, it's disaster zone now. In fact, it's red and white sirens, uh, red and blue sirens, both flashing. It's total emergency. Uh, it is a tragic story, a pathetic story, uh, a story of foolishness and ungodliness. And in a, in a depressing sort of way, it is an I told you so. And yet it's not a smug, I told you so, yeah? Notice how Samuel himself feels about it. He warned them that the king that they wanted wasn't going to be any good. And he's not, I told you so. Have a look at 15 verse 11 at the end of these string of stories. 15 verse 11, the word of the Lord came to Samuel. And uh, the Lord said to him, I am grieved that I've made Saul king because he's turned away from me and not carried out my instructions. And Samuel was troubled and he cried out to the Lord all that night. Yeah, he's not going, ha, there you go, serves him right, ha. It's like, oh my goodness. I mean, can I tell you that I I was never a massive fan, say, of um, uh, the Willow Creek seeker-sensitive services, which were a massive thing through the 80s and 90s um, in in evangelical churches. uh, Certainly not a fan of Hillsong um, and their prosperity gospel and stuff. And yet I'm not kind of there. When, when scandals hit Willow Creek and, and uh, exposés of their leader, Bill Hybels, or when scandals have hit Brian Houston and exposés of Hillsong, I'm not there going, ha, 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 told you so. Never liked the seeker-sensitive thing anyway. Never liked the Pentecostal thing anyway. I'm grieved. I think you should be grieved. Even if you say oh, the problems in their model have been exposed, I also just say, I don't want God's name to be disgraced. I don't want the, the good, godly, loyal people... Um, mixed up in the Willow Creek movement or the Hillsong movement to, to have their hearts broken and disappointment and disillusionment. You, know, you should be grieved. Even if you go, there were problems there waiting to happen. You're not smug about it. Heartbroken. Uh, and, and outraged for when there is wrong. You know, outraged and grieved, not in a smug uh, kind of doom-scrolling glee, but instead a, a heavy heart. And so here we have uh, uh, these three failures. All through here, all through these stories, there's a lot of mentions of fathers and sons. Um, early on, as, as Andy pointed out yesterday morning, we had bad stories of fathers and sons. Eli and his sons were a rotten crew. Fathers and sons dynasties uh, aren't necessarily good things. You know, succession never goes well um, in the modern world or the ancient world. And so the, the fact that we get fathers and sons, you know, Saul looking for donkeys and his father worrying about it, fathers and sons... Samuel and his sons, in chapter 8, not good news, fathers and sons. Just keep an eye out for this fathers and sons. It's often a trigger either for uh-oh or, in the case of Jonathan, uh, an ironic spin on that. So, so Saul and the Philistines, chapter 13. He finally obeys the command given to him way back in chapter 10. Do what your hand finds you to do and, uh, and actually rout the Philistines who are having a barbecue in your backyard. Finally, he acts. Um, on this command back in chapter 10, verses 2 to 8. Um, rather than being passive, he is now active um, uh, and finally attacks. Although, 
Again, here's this interesting father and son business. It's his son who takes the first move. 13 verse 2. Saul chose 3,000 men from Israel, 2,000 were with him at Michmash and in the hill country of Bethel, and 1,000 with Jonathan at Gibeah and Benjamin. The rest of the men he sent back to their homes. Jonathan, that's the son of Saul, attacked the Philistine outpost at Gibeah, and the Philistines heard about it. And then Saul had the trumpet blown throughout the land and said, let the Hebrews hear. So all the Israelites heard the news. Saul has attacked the Philistine outpost and now Israel has become a stench to the Philistines and the people were summoned to join Saul at Gilgal. Finally now, routing the Philistines out of this region that they've moved their way back into since chapter 7. Although it's, <laughs> you know, Saul takes the credit in verse 4, but it's his son who gets the ball rolling. Um, but now that they're finally going to act, pressure comes upon them, right? There's pressure to trust the Lord and to trust his prophet. Verse 5, the Philistines assembled to fight Israel and there were 3,000 chariots um, compared to, what was it with Saul, 300? It's suddenly like this massive pressure of an enormous... Um, so Saul had 3,000 um, 3, men from Israel and uh, 200 uh, with him at Michmash. Um, but here we have 3,000 with chariots and 6,000 charioteers and soldiers, as numerous as the sand on the seashore, vastly outnumbered in terms of uh, power and technology, military technology. And they went up and camped at Michmash near Beth-Avon. When the men of Israel saw the situation was critical, their army was hard-pressed. They hid in the caves and the thickets and the rocks and the pits. They're afraid now as the battle comes close. Israel, hearts are melting. Saul remains at Gilgal and all the troops were quaking with fear at the end of verse 7. And so here he is ready for the next phase of the battle. And as Samuel had said back in chapter 10, once you do this initial routing of the people, uh, of the Philistines, wait for me for seven days, is what Samuel had said back in 10 verse 8. Go ahead of me into Gilgal, wait for seven days until I come to you, and then you'll be told what to do. So here is Saul at Gilgal, remembering this promise of the Lord and his prophet Samuel, waiting, waiting, waiting for this time. Verse 8, the seven days set by Samuel, but Samuel didn't come. And the men are beginning to melt away, beginning to scatter. So what's he going to do? Is he going to trust the Lord, trust the prophet, be patient? No, well, Saul, whenever he seems to be proactive in these chapters, is proactive in bad ways. <laughs> and so here having uh, the initial good action triggered by Jonathan, an initial victory, Saul now takes initiative in a way he shouldn't do. He acts against the patient instruction, takes on the role of a priest, not his role, he's a king, not a priest, and starts offering up sacrifices as a kind of um, PR stunt to rally the people, maybe a superstitious kind of a civil religion stunt to draw some blessing. You know, a religion is often used to um, rally people in times of war um, and, uh, and unite them. And so at the very least, rallying the people, if not trying to trigger some blessing in the absence of what God had said would bring blessing. And so that's verse 9. Uh, bring me the burnt offerings and the fellowship offerings. And Saul offered up the burnt offerings. And then, <laughs> uh-oh, Samuel appears. What have you done? What have you done? Reminds us again of the sin of Achan in the book of Joshua. Reminds us of God confronting Adam and Eve after they took the forbidden fruit in Genesis chapter 3. What have you done? You have acted foolishly, verse 13. And so judgment, 13 and 14. You have not kept the command of the Lord that God gave you. If you had, you, he would have established your kingdom, Saul. 
for all time, but now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him leader of his people because you haven't kept the Lord's command. There's a little, little kind of watch this space that's anticipating King David to come. So judgment comes. The end of the kingdom is nigh for King Saul, short-lived as it was. We even get there in 13 verse 1, a theological summary of his kingdom. That, it, uh, that actually you see some little square brackets around some of the numbers there in 13 verse 1. Um, uh, some people try and fill in the blanks and say he reigned for 42 years, the actual timeline that he was on the throne. The Hebrew there, I understand, is just two. He reigned in Israel two years. And the point, if that's the more accurate rendering, is to say, uh, in terms of theologically ruling, that's how long before he had so screwed up that his reign effectively ended in terms of the blessing of God. And, and David was anointed to be his successor. All right, so that's the first phase. The second one is in chapter 14, we get a, a, a couple of stories that highlight a contrast between Saul and his son, Jonathan. Now, I've mentioned that fathers and sons is largely a red flag in 1 Samuel. It's Eli and his wretched sons. It's Samuel even and his disappointing sons. It's... It's a, an area where you start thinking of fathers and sons, you go, oh, this isn't going to go so great. Yeah. And yet in this case, that expectation is reversed. There's an irony here, because in the case of Jonathan, like we've already seen in 13 verse 3, actually, Jonathan, <laughs> could we just have him, please? <laughs> Can we skip a generation? Jonathan seems much better. Um, their situation is dire in chapter 14. We read at the end of 13 that the Philistines are pressing in on them and have control of all the arms production um, uh, uh, industry. And so Israel are effectively disarmed with a limited force. And here we have now a son uh, who trusts the Lord where his father doesn't. Thinking again of Hannah's prayer that... that Christine read for us. There's a lot of reversals in Hannah's prayer. The mighty will be brought down, the lowly will be raised up. Well, maybe this is one of those reversals. Jonathan trusts the Lord where Saul doesn't. Have a look at 14 verse 10. 14 verse 10. Uh, it, it, it's part of a larger story, but just notice the end of verse 10. Uh, if with this sign has happened, it will be a sign that the Lord has given us them into our hands. And verse 12, climb up after me. The Lord has given them into the hands of Israel. There's a confidence in God that he will fight for Israel. That's what Jonathan displays, a confidence in God. And so when, when the, the incursion, the skirmish that Jonathan leads comes to fruition, verse 14, in that first attack, Jonathan and his armour bearer killed some 20 men in the area, around half an acre, and then panic struck the whole army, those in the camps in the field and those in the outposts and the raiding parties in the ground. It was a panic sent by God. God brought the victory. Then Saul rallies, in, and it's at this stage a mopping up operation. It, 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 God is the one fighting for Israel. Yeah. Jonathan trusts God. The Lord sends a panic. Saul comes to the party late. Again, with a superstitious gesture at the ark of God uh, before realising actually, you know, it's no need for even that because the Lord is fighting for Israel. So verse 20, Saul and all his men assembled and went to battle. They found the Philistines in total confusion, striking each other with their swords. <laughs> Those Hebrews who had previously been with the Philistines had gone after them. Now, uh, double, double cross came back. 
with Saul and Jonathan and all the Israelites hidden in the hill country of Ephraim. They heard the Philistines were on the run. They joined in the hot pursuit. So who was the victor really? Who was the victor Jonathan was trusting in? Saul didn't trust in the Lord, verse 23. The Lord rescued Israel that day and the battle moved on past Beth-Avon. So chapter 14, we see Jonathan as a contrast to Saul. He sees the Lord as the ultimate king. He trusts the Lord. The Lord rules. The Lord fights. So therefore, your prime job as a crown prince or, or king is to trust the Lord, which um, Saul has been failing to do. The second half of chapter 14, by contrast, highlights the folly of Saul. Um, uh, he's rebuked by the people. He's rebuked by Jonathan. Uh, we, for time's sake, we won't go into the details. It's one of these places where stupid oath-taking betrays foolish leaders. There's a similar wretched story in Judges around the Jephthah, who was a really skillful judge raised up by the Lord, but makes this wretched oath and then foolishly follows through on his terrible oath. Um, at least by contrast to Jephthah, in this case, Jonathan and the people rebuke Saul and call him back from his reckless, foolish, superstitious oath. And he doesn't fulfil his oath and kill his own son, which was what he was setting himself up to do. Um, Saul's wretched oath about binding his people to a fast weakened the people, weakened their ability to follow through on the the military um, duties that God had entrusted to them to protect the people. Um, Take a look at how the the people... Actually, no, I won't read for time's sake. It's, it's, it's a good story. You can read in chapter 14. And it is just an example of how what seems on the surface to be this noble, holy thing, binding in oaths, is several times in Scripture, like in Judges, like here, actually shown to be a, a foolish, worldly, superstitious thing that only leads to trouble. It kind of gives extra weight to Jesus' teaching in the New Testament, doesn't it? Just let your yes be yes and your no be no. Yeah. These are these interesting stories in scripture that expose the folly of those who would be oath takers. Um, we then get, in, uh, again, like although Saul's reign continues on in one level, right to the end of 1 Samuel, when he dies at the hands of the Philistines in chapter 31, we kind of get it wrapped up here for us in verses 47 to 52 of 1 Samuel 14. It's as if he's, he's as good as over again. There's, there's these signs saying, yes, yeah, Saul's over. Yeah, the judgment's come. Chapter 13, uh, here's a summary. It reads like a, a one kings, two kings summary paragraph from verse 47 to 52. Saul did this, he did that, his descendants were this, his descendants were that. He did some good stuff, he did some bad stuff. He never really defeated the Philistines, verse 52. He kept fighting them on and on and on. He never could really bring peace to the land. And in the end, he died in battle with the Philistines. We'll find out in chapter 31. Then the final famous failure story is in chapter 15. Another story, possibly the chronological order could be, you know, it may not be, this may not be the final event. This may have come before um, uh, chapter 14, possibly, or something like this. It's, it, it, it's not always in total chronological order, but it's included here as climactic because it is so emblematic of his failure. He is a foolish leader. He fails to listen to the voice of the Lord through the prophet. See, the voice of the Lord comes to him in 15 verses 1 to 3. 
Um, Samuel said to Saul, I am the, um, so the prophet said to the king, I am the one the Lord sent to anoint you king over his people Israel. So now listen to the message from the Lord. This is what the Lord Almighty says. I will punish the Amalekites for what they did to Israel when they laid them on the way out of Egypt. So now go attack the Amalekites and completely destroy them. This is a, one of the final enactments of the extraordinary and unique promised land judgment type thing. Okay, in addition to the Canaanites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and so on, the Amalekites also fell under this extraordinary and total judgment of God, destruction, the devoting, the harem um, judgment. Uh, the Amalekites were placed under that by the prophet Moses, and now this was to be enacted by King Saul. You need to be a little um, uh, conscious of the fact that the the totality of destruction described in verse 3, similar to the Joshua story, um, is being used in a broad term, often applied to military locations. And so that's just something to be conscious of here. We're not necessarily dealing with ab- the absolute population of the Amalekites, but military outposts here. And the language is a little bit like saying uh, Port Adelaide completely demolished and destroyed and annihilated uh, the lions or something. That you're not actually saying they completely annihilated, demolished and destroyed them, but it's an it's a enormous way of describing the thoroughness of the judgment. So, so it's just a, a thing to bear in mind as, as we read this sort of stuff, how many actual women and children are involved in these outposts may be quite different to the, the kind of stereotyped phrases, if you like. Nevertheless, the point here is it is bringing a judgment from God. It's not just a military attack. And certainly not the general kind of military attack that Israel were to be involved with, with the Philistines. You don't get that language for the Philistines. You don't get that language in other warfares they're involved in. This is a very peculiar, remarkable um, and unique kind of judgment of God that Israel was only to show to the Amalekites and to the, um, and to the entry into the Promised Land. It was to be thorough. It was to be complete. It was not keeping of plunder. It was not t- capturing of prisoners. It was delivering a judgment of God just as much as, say, the destruction of Sodom uh, directly by God was a judgment from God. And yet Saul fails to fulfil this command of bringing the judgment of God, that the word of God through the prophet of God came to him. Uh, he, uh, he begins by seeming to be diligent. He, he spares the Kenites who are, who are promised to be spared of this judgment, verse 6, and so is diligent in that way. He seems to be acting. He is victorious. And yet, verse 9, Saul and the army spared the king and the best of the sheep and the cattle and the fat calves and the lambs, everything that was good. They were unwilling to destroy them completely, but everything that was despised and weak, they totally destroyed. And then the word of the Lord came to Samuel, I am grieved that I've made Saul king because he's turned away from me and has not carried out my instructions. Samuel was troubled and he cried out to the Lord all that night. So he didn't fulfil this special duty of a remarkable and unique judgment of God. He instead treated it like a battle with the Philistines or the Edomites or whoever else and, and ha- had victory and then said, oh, but we'll keep that and we'll keep this and we'll set aside that. And, and who knows, maybe this political ally is best kept as a prisoner rather than um, brought under this capital punishment judgment of God. He uses his own wisdom, in other words, and perhaps what's best for his morale, for his troops. Uh, he's ruling, in other words, like a king amongst the nations using his own worldly judgment, seeking his own um, kind of civil um, control and influence um, rather than trusting that if he 
obeys the Lord and trusts the Lord and leads the people in that way, all will be well. As the story goes on and Samuel confronts Saul, he's making excuses and he's going, well, what do you mean? I did obey. I did do it. I got killed some people. We fought a little bit, you know. It's, and, and anyway, then he has the gall to say, um, why'd they keep the good sheep? Um, what was the thing? Um, well, I wanted to offer it to God, he says, verse 24. The soldiers took the sheep and the cattle from the plunder, verse 24, and the best of what is devoted to God in order to sacrifice to the Lord your God. Interesting, Lord, your God. Isn't that revealing again? It's Samuel's God, not Saul's God. Um, but no, look, you see, you've got to understand, I did obey the Lord, mostly, and, and I kept these things, but you see, I kept them to worship God, you see. You've got to understand, you know, like I, 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 I mixed things up, I improvised a little, but it was all for God. By reaction to that, Samuel will have none of it. Check out, I love verse 16. Saul's in the middle of telling his sport story, spinning his uh, angle. Stop. Stop. <laughs> Let me tell you what's going on around here. Stop. Why, verse 19, why didn't you obey the Lord? Why did you pounce on the plunder and do evil in the eyes of the Lord? Why? And you get this famous little verse here, verses 22, 23. Uh, the Lord doesn't delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the voice of the Lord. To obey is better than sacrifice. To heed is better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is like the sin of divination. And Saul will go on to engage in divination in chapter 18. Um, and arrogance is like the evil of idolatry because you've rejected the word of the Lord. He has rejected you as king. Verse 26, I will not go back with you. You have rejected the word of the Lord. The Lord has rejected you as king over Israel. And Samuel, this is a vivid, tragic scene. Verse 27, as Samuel turned to leave, Saul grabbed hold of the hem of his robe and it tore. And Samuel said, ha, huh, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and given it to one of your neighbours, one better than you. He who is the glory of Israel doesn't lie or change his mind. He's not a man, but he should change his mind. The rain's over. And the very end of the chapter tells us that Samuel and Saul had nothing to do with one another ever again. They may have crossed paths. I had a sad experience like that just this week. Someone that I've uh, tragically had a, 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 at this stage, unresolved conflict with. It's just really awkward. And you see someone like that in public. It's just really painful. But that's the kind of, they may have crossed paths, seen each other in the supermarket, but they didn't have anything to do with one another anymore. Um, uh, Samuel mourned. For him, It's not I told you so. And the Lord himself was grieved. He'd made Saul king. The rain's over. The judgment has come on the house of Saul, the house of Kish. Yeah. I mentioned last night how you see these instabilities in the Old Testament uh, that point us to the new. The Lord is king. Saul is king. How do those two things fit together? Well, that kind of instability in the Old Testament, in the imperfect pattern points us to Jesus, where he is God, the son, become a human, is king. Who is king? David's line, who is the, God, the son? That's where it's resolved. Verses 22 and 23 is another of those Old Testament instabilities as well. Throughout the Old Testament, we have God commands sacrifices. God doesn't really delight in sacrifices at all. <laughs> side by side. There's a few Psalms that do that. Psalm 40 or Psalm 69 and uh, Psalm 51. There's a bunch of them. Isaiah says it in various ways as well, where it's, 
God doesn't really want sacrifices. He's not interested in horns and hoofs and organs and fat and blood. That's not what God's about. And that on its own, as Samuel says here, as Isaiah says very directly, it, it may as well be dog's blood. It may as well be human blood. It may as well, it, it may as well be witchcraft. It's, it's, God's not ultimately, fundamentally in the business of animal sacrifice. And yet he commands it. And so that's another uh, volatility in the Old Testament pattern. It's, it's just a pattern. And one of the clues that it's just a pattern, you know, you watch the movie the second time and see all the clues for the twist at the end. Well, one of the clues for the twist at the end is this, these verses that keep pointing out, yeah, God commanded sacrifices. And you know what? God's not really ultimately interested in sacrifice. He's interested in obedience. He's interested in listening. He's, how's that resolved? Well, as I hinted at last night, and Hebrews quotes one of the Psalms that says this stuff, uh, Psalm 40, and it talks about it in relation to Jesus in the book of Hebrews to say it's in Jesus, God, the Son and the Messiah, who says, you didn't delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices, but a body you've prepared for me. I listen to your word. I've come to do your will, O God. And how does he do God's will? How does he obey rather than sacrifice? Well, he obeys by sacrificing himself once for all for the sins of the world. And so then how do we now in the New Testament age worship God, not with sacrifices at all, but Romans chapter 12, in view of God's mercy, offer your whole lives as living sacrifices. That's your worship. What's Christian worship? What's Christian liturgy? What's Christian uh, priestcraft? That's the whole life offered up in worship and devotion to God. The patterns melt away entirely. And give way to the reality that it's Jesus who is our sacrifice, our priest, um, uh, in the most holy place, in our hearts by the Spirit is our temple. And our worship now is everything we do in his name. So that's just another one of those little places that points us through into the New Testament. But now let's come into David and and briefly we'll we'll touch on this with the time remaining. So having looked at the failure of Saul, now let's now look at his replacement, David. Of course, David goes on to fail as well and yet his dynasty doesn't. God in David begins his promised plan and purpose that will be fulfilled in Jesus. The Lord said to Samuel, 16 verse 1, How long will you mourn for Saul since I've rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I'm sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I've chosen one of his sons to be king. We'd already heard about that mentioned, hadn't we? I've chosen one after my own heart. I've prepared one after my own heart. I've got a king to replace you who is better than you. We've seen in 13, 14, 15. And now we will find this one. This one after my own heart. Yeah. And, and as he goes to Jesse's house, um, we have a whole bunch of different um, um, sons displayed before us who are impressive, as Saul was impressive, right? Um, verse 6, when they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, surely that's the Lord anointed standing before the Lord. Yeah, impressive, a head taller, handsome, remarkable, like Saul was perhaps. But the Lord said to Samuel, don't consider his appearance or his height. It's a contrast, isn't it? It's like Hannah's prayer, the Lord brings down the mighty and raises up the lowly. Don't consider his appearance or his height. I've rejected him. The Lord doesn't look at the things man looks at. Man looks at outward appearance. The Lord looks at the heart. 
and they bring through all the other sons. It's none of them, actually. It's the little kid, the youngest. He's out looking after the sheep because we don't even bother. He's at the kid's table kind of thing. There's not even a kid's table. He's out doing jobs. Um, we haven't bothered with him because he's just a little one. He's cute. He's handsome, but in a fine, ruddy, handsome, cute way. Like, you'd, you'd snap him on Instagram with his sheep kind of thing. But he, he's, not, he's not your remarkable, kingly figure. Um, uh, and he's the one, the youngest, the one we didn't even bother inviting, the cute one, who is actually the one God has chosen. The spirit of the Lord comes upon him. He's anointed, Christed, Messiahed as the king. The spirit of the Lord comes upon him and stays upon him from that day on. It's not the rushing of the spirit. It's the resting upon now and resting with. Now, a little, uh, again, little kind of theological uh, translation-y point. Um, uh, we often think about David as the, you know, God looks at the heart, say, verse 7, or the man after my own heart, as we saw back in chapter 13. And we think about that as being, um, this is one who uh, God looks at David's character. And, and when he looks at David's character, he sees one who longs after God. As a deer pants for water, he longs after God. And so we're saying Saul, his, his, his outward appearance impressive like Eliab, inward character bad. David, uh, outward appearance, well, cute, but um, his, um, his inward character great. He's after God's own heart. Now, those things are true, but it's likely that the emphasis here is not so much on the place that the Lord has in David's heart, as the place that David has in the Lord's heart. So it's not so much about the place the Lord has in David's heart, as in David's character, as the place that David has in the Lord's heart, that is in the Lord's purposes. It's not so much, don't look at the outward appearance, look at the inner life as it is. Don't look at the outward appearance, look at God's purposes, God's plans. That, that's more the emphasis, I suspect, through here. Not so much about David's character, although that's true, but about instead God's purposes, that God isn't looking according to the eye. God is looking according to his heart, his will, his plan, his purpose. What makes someone mighty, in other words, is not how tall they are, how um, uh, geared up with equipment they are, how muscular they are, how wise they are by human standards, how eloquent they are. Remember Moses? I'm a stutterer. I can't speak. Why have you chosen me? Get sent someone else. Yeah. Um, no, no, what matters is God's choosing plan and purpose because who's the king of Israel? Ultimately, it's the Lord. Who's going to give victory to Israel? Like we saw in um, uh, chapter 13, chapter 14, it's the Lord. Yeah? And so what's interesting is not how impressive someone is like the other nations. What's interesting, yes, is their character, the place the Lord has in their hearts, but even more, God's will, his choosing. He's chosen this one. He said, he's my one. I'll put my spirit in him. I'll lead him to victory. Trust the Lord. Trust the one the Lord has chosen. The one who is after God's heart, God's purpose, God's plan, God's will. And you know what? That will goes right back into Genesis, tucked away in a string of those peculiar and cryptic prophecies, our deathbed prophecies that pepper the Old Testament. A lot of them, it's hard to know exactly what they're talking about. But then you get these shards of light. And this is one of the most amazing. This is from Genesis 49 um, and uh, from verse 8. Prophecy to Judah, the son of Jacob, the son of Israel, that is. Jacob changed his name to Israel, the father of the nation. Judah, 
Genesis 49, verse, nine, uh, verse 8. Your brothers will praise you and your hand will be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son will bow down to you. You are like a lion's cub. Lion of the tribe of Judah, that's where it comes from. You are like a lion's cub, O Judah, Genesis 49, 9. You return from the prey, my son, like a lion. He crouched and lies down like a lioness who dares to rouse him. The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until he comes to whom it belongs. And the obedience of the nations is his. He will tether his donkey to a vine, the colt to the choicest branch. He'll wash his garments in wine, his robes in the blood of grapes. His eyes will be darker than wine, his teeth whiter than milk. Isn't that amazing? Right back in Genesis, tucked into a section where, if anything, it seemed like kind of it's the line of uh, Ephraim maybe or Joseph maybe that's going to be the kingly line. And yet here we get this hint of where God's purposes are heading. It'll watch Judah, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the scepter that will come to one who will rule the nations. It all begins here in these couple of little verses. God sees according to his heart. His will that he's been talking about back here in Genesis is now coming as we come to the tribe of Judah, to the town of Bethlehem. I mean, we Christians know all about Bethlehem, don't we? To this chosen one, David. The spirit rests on him and stays upon him. So much so that we then get another ironic twist. David ends up in Saul's service. The end of chapter 16. Saul's troubled by an evil spirit. I don't think here we necessarily need to think demonic spirit. It could just be, uh, uh, could in this case be, like evil can also mean just horrible. You know, shall we accept good as well as evil from the Lord, Job says, meaning uh, distress and trouble as well as blessing and joy. Here he is troubled. He is troubled in spirit. Uh, it seems as you watch the erratic and uh, bizarre behaviour of Saul and the rest of the book, that, that whether it's a demonic or merely just total disorder of mood, um, he, he's in a bad way. As the spirit leaves him and his kingdom falls around him, he becomes more erratic, violent. Um, his errors of lapses of judgment and sort of stuff just become all over the place. And it's interesting, again, whether it's demonic spirit or not, it's interesting in this case, a... A human method of calming helps. That's an interesting thought, isn't it? If, you're, if it's demonic, that's an interesting thought, to think that even somebody tormented by spirit can be soothed, arguably. Uh, but that, that can be used. This, this David becomes a minstrel who soothes Saul with his harp. Verse 18 and 19. He plays the harp. He's a brave warrior. The Lord is with him. And when he plays... Um, Saul's spirit is eased, verse 23. Now, if that is a demonic spirit, that arguably is a little bit of an indirect proof text for why you shouldn't not medicate someone you think might be possessed because it's, they need an exorcism. Even if, even if you do believe someone is possessed, if they're distressed, relieving their distress is a good thing to do, whether it's with a musical instrument or sending them to hospital and giving them some medication. <laughs> So it doesn't make any sense at all to say, oh, they're demon-possessed, therefore don't give them any other kinds of care whatsoever. How does that follow? I'm not so sure it is demonic possession, though, in this case. I suspect it is that the Lord has uh, stepped back from him in blessing and handed him over then to a, a distress of mood, perhaps. Different commentators use different fabulous phrases like profound Kierkegaardian melancholia. <laughs> <laughs> Manic depression or whatever it is. There's some extreme upheaval of mood that he's going through. And yet still, he can be soothed. 
in an ancient form of soothing. That's still today, music therapy. <laughs> and here, but the interesting thing is David, his, his successor, comes into the court and is able to bless him, his rival. Just an interesting, again, an interesting, beautiful, peacemaking hint. And David shows himself to be um, not a violent usurper uh, like other nations and would-be claimants to the throne throughout the rest of 1 Samuel. Yeah, Far be it from me to take my, my knife and slay uh, the Lord's king, David will say later on. Having had that little episode, a curious little episode, we then get uh, David's introduction on the scene in a big way in chapter 17. We don't have time to read it, but I suspect it is a very familiar story to you. The Philistines come en masse and present a champion in the valley, Goliath, this enormous warrior. Goliath of Gath, which back in chapter 7, Israel had claimed back. Again, the Philistines have moved back in, into the backyard. And here is this mighty warrior who is mocking Israel and mocking Israel's God. Your God's ridiculous. You're pathetic. Find your best person. If they can just defeat me, the rest of us will surrender, which they don't do. <laughs> but, you know, that's the challenge. Um, Israel are terrified. They're terrified of Goliath. They're ashamed of their God, I guess, ultimately. They don't trust God to go to give victory. No one dares. Step forward. Saul doesn't. No one else dares. David does. David overhears. Go away, David. Get, go, go. No, no, no. Get, can I? David, shush. Grown-ups are talking. Uh, David offers himself. He says, I'll do it. Actually, I'm, I, you might think I'm cute, but I tell you what, shepherding isn't, isn't a cute occupation. I faced live threats out on the hills of Judah. I tell you what, and the God has given me success in my little shepherd world. That's what he says in verse 36. I've killed a lion, I've killed a bear. So this Philistine's just a lion and a bear to me. God, God is the one I trust. God will strengthen me. God will deliver me. It's just so impressive, isn't it? They try and dress him up in armour and he goes, oh, this ain't me. This, this, this don't feel good. This don't feel right. You know, this, this is not me. You know, I'm not, I'm not an armour guy. I'm, I'm shepherd kid, you know. And then going out with nothing more than slings and stones. Oh, hang on. Did I say nothing more? Of course, he comes with something much more than the stones and stones, doesn't he? He comes with the Spirit of God who has rested upon him. He comes with the Lord who fights with the armies of heaven and walks out into the valley. He doesn't need nothing. All that Goliath has. Let's listen to all. Yeah. <laughs> We've had a lot of talking about seeing. Seeing with the eye, seeing with the Lord's heart. Well, now see, um, 1 Samuel's author describes, a see Goliath, a champion, verse 4, who was from Gath, came out the Philistine camp. See him. He's over nine feet tall. He has bronze helmet on his head and a coat of scale armour and bronze weighing 50,000 shekels. And his legs, he wore bronze greaves and he had a bronze javelin was slung on his back. It could be some kind of um, slinging uh, spear shaft like a weaver's rod there, verse 7. An iron point weighed 600 shekels. His shield bearer went ahead of him. That's all Goliath's got. All Goliath has is a shield bearer and a weaver's rod, slinging javelin and bronze armour and a helmet. That's all he's got. That's the only thing this mere man has. Nothing more. Whereas David comes out with something far more great than bronze helmets and javelin rods and armour bearers and bits of metal, tinfoil. David's got something much more than that. He comes out with the Spirit of God and the Lord who spoke the world into being, who rules the heavens, 
who brings down mountains and raises up rivers, who creates the lion and can defeat the lion. That's who David comes with. He comes as the lion of the tribe of Judah, to whom the nations will belong, and brings down Goliath, cuts off his head, and so disgraces the Philistines in all their might, and the Philistines' gods, which are no gods at all. He brings the victory. The Lord brings the victory. Verse 47, all the people gathered here and will know that it's not by sword, verse 47, not by spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord and he will give all into your hands. And so verse 50, David triumphed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone. Without a sword in his hand, he struck down the Philistine and he killed him. There's fathers and sons all the way through. Fathers and sons, check out how the son of Saul responds in the start of chapter 18. After David finished talking with his Saul, Jonathan became one in spirit with David and he loved him as himself. And from that day, Saul kept David with him and didn't let him return to his father's house. And Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Jonathan took off his robe he was wearing and gave it to David along with his tunic, even his sword and his bow and his belt. What's he doing? He's saying, you're the rightful king. I'm the prince. I'm the one who, I'm the uh, King Charles waiting to, to take over the throne of England. Um, you know, uh, I don't want it. You're the rightful king. You take the sword. You take the tunic. You take the, I will love you. And I love here, there is an affection to this friendship. It's beautiful. Um, but a lot of uh, those familiar with old, um, uh, the Old Testament cultures point out that also love is a, is a political term of fealty, of faithfulness as well that a ruler expects love from their subjects. And David is saying, I I bind myself to you. Those of you who are familiar with the Lord of the Rings films will remember that beautiful scene um, with the the death of Boromir when he recognises Aragorn as his king. It's beautiful, isn't it? I don't think Tolkien wrote those lines, did he? Yeah. (laughs) Sometimes the movies are better in some ways. They are spine, they are gorgeous lines. And that's the kind of thing that's going, Jonathan's not dying at this point, but he's saying, you are my... What is it, my captain, my lord, my king? Yeah, my my brother. Is it my brother first? Something like that. That, That's what he's saying. I love you, but I love you as my king to be. Jonathan now sees, not with the eyes, but he sees according to the heart of God. He recognises that this is God's chosen who brings the victory. This is the first occasion of what Psalm 2 turns into something of a national anthem. The nation's raging, the people's plotting in vain. The Lord looking down from heaven and laughing because he has set his anointed one in the line of David who will rule them with an iron scepter and dash them to pieces like pottery who will rule the earth with the blessing and the rule and the justice of God. And what David experienced in a small way in his rule and an imperfect way, as Christine has alluded to, for he also became a murderer and an adulterer, a wretched, dirty old man and a hopeless father as well of defiant and sons. He had his own failures. His son who took over his rule, glorious, wise Solomon, had his follies and immoralities, looked a lot like the kings of the other nations. But King Jesus, as we began, as was proclaimed in the great gospel uh, of the apostles, Peter and Paul, King Jesus, in the line of David, the great line of the tribe of Judah, the ultimate anointed one on whom the spirit rests and remains, He's the 
He's the great, perfect, pure, mighty king. And he puts down every enemy, not just Goliath of Gath, or the Philistines, or the nations, but sin, death, the devil. And so God gave him the name that's above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, whether in heaven and earth and under the earth. And every tongue declare that Jesus Christ is God, to the glory of God the Father. He's our champion. So take off your tunic, take off your sword, take off your... Lay them down before him. Take off the little crown you set up on your life and lay that crown before King Jesus. And that's the good news that we preach. Jesus is good. Jesus is great. Whatever the troubles we face in life, Jesus uh, brings us ultimate triumph and peace and life eternal upon his return. Let's pray. Our loving Father, we do grieve at sin and failure, whether in Saul's life, among the Philistines, David, Solomon, our own lives, we grieve at our sin, our ungodliness, our failure. We grieve in, in and with our world at its troubles and injustices, its abuses and lies, its false gods. Forgive us. And we praise you for coming in your son, the Lord Jesus, as our champion, our saviour, our king, our rescuer, our sacrifice, our priest. Um, every good thing is in our Lord Jesus. And in his name, forgive us, we pray. In his name, work in us by your spirit to transform us inside and out. Rush upon us by your spirit that we may trust in him obey him, worship him, live for him. And we pray this semester as we work and study and live and play, we will do so to the glory of, uh, of God and Christ and that we ask you give us opportunities to speak of Christ, to share Christ, to invite people to hear of every good thing we have in Christ. Bless us in godliness and in evangelistic fruitfulness, we beg of you. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.